Hello everyone and thank you for tuning in. This episode is a bit different. As you might have noticed, now and then I share interviews that I give on other podcasts with full credit to the hosts and with their permission. This is an interview I gave in late August 2023. The host is Hradai Jala, a 15-year-old investing enthusiast based in Singapore. I had a rare opportunity to read an early copy of his book, The Worldly Wisdom. Please keep an eye out for it when it comes out. I find it very inspiring to see someone at such a young age who not only enjoys studying investing, but also wrote a really good book about everything he has learned so far. I recently wrote an essay called A Letter to a Younger Self, where I share what I would tell my younger self. You can look it up on Substack. Talking to Hradai felt a lot like talking to a younger me. It's a longer interview. Save it, listen over time, or in one sitting, as you like it. It's a really special conversation, as you're about to hear. I share some stories you might have heard elsewhere in the podcast, but many are new and different, especially around discovering the stock market as a teenager. I share my experience being a podcast host as well. I also talk about some of the lessons I learned from a number of guests on my podcasts, including Lucas Miller and Daniel Crosby, on the topic of how brain works, how our biases can get us in trouble investing. I discuss my self-imposed selective ignorance in the way I collect information and filter a lot out. I share with Hradai the importance of the right work environment for an investor. We talk about early investing mistakes and dangers of bankruptcies. I share my crisis investing pandemic era experience, which I write about in my recent book, Crisis Investing. We have a lively conversation about envy. I also bring up Guy Spear, William Green, and other guests from my podcast. I mention the importance of spending your time and attention well. I explain how I think our childhood and upbringing might have a big bearing on how we think of money and investing. I share some examples from my podcast, Talking Billions. We talk about the variety of market participants and a variety of stocks available to buy. We also chat about Berkshire Hathaway, Buffett, Omaha. I explain the difference between getting rich and staying rich. In the notes to this episode, you'll see some links that will help you learn more about Radai Jala and about his book and writing and his podcast as well. Please enjoy this special episode. Hello, everybody. Today, I'm here with our guest, um, Bogumil Baranowski, founding partner of Stigard Associates and the author of three best-selling books, Crisis Investing, Money, Life, Family, and Outsmarting the Car Crowd. He also runs the podcast Talking Billions, where he interviews many wonderful guests in this value investing field. And do check that out, too. Um, so without further ado, let's head right into the discussion. Well, hello. Thank you for having me. I was really looking forward to this conversation. And yeah, I'm excited to be here today with you. Yeah. Um, so, so just to start, um, I would like to ask you about your childhood how you grew up, um, especially because you, you, you know, you grew up on the Eastern Bloc of uh, post-World War II Europe, um, to the wrong side of the, the Iron Curtain, uh, as you've mentioned before. <laughs> yep. And um, in Poland, and then you went bargain hunting with your grandmother, which eventually led you to Buffett, who is known as the Woodstock of, of, of capitalism and capitalists, uh, and Graham, and then buying good businesses during times when no one believes in them. So how did your, your childhood bring you there? 
That's a wonderful and big question. So I was born in Poland, and then I went to schools around Europe, and I picked up a book, One Up on Wall Street by Peter Lynch, which is a book that I know that you like a lot. So I'm curious about what you thought of the book. But I was curious about history. I was curious about numbers, and I was studying economics and finance, but I couldn't really put it all together. I wasn't sure where it will lead me. And it was the time soon after the internet bubble burst. So a lot of my professors were not really encouraging us to go to investing. They were talking about the stock market as if it was a casino. And I think it can be if you want it to be, but it doesn't have to be. And Peter Lynch had some very clear ideas in the book that really spoke to me. And the biggest one was that stocks are small pieces of businesses. And I never thought of the stock market as a place where I can go and, and buy small pieces of businesses. And it doesn't really matter if you have billions of dollars of or hundreds of dollars, you can become a shareholder along with Warren Buffett and, and Bill Gates and everybody else. And it really spoke to me that you have an existing business that's successful, that has products and customers and profits, and you get to own a small piece of it just like anybody else. So from that point on, I couldn't look at the stock market the same way. And, and I continued to read more books and discover more greats, as you call them, in your book, Worldly Wisdom, which is coming out soon, I hope. And I continued to learn, and I discovered Warren Buffett. Actually, Peter, Peter Lynch mentions Warren Buffett in One Up on Wall Street, but I have to tell you that when I was reading those pages, I had no idea who Warren Buffett was. If anything, I knew there was some successful business operator out there, but I, I had no context of uh, what a wonderful investor he is and what a long record he already had at the time. It was the early 2000s. So that's how my uh, journey took a, a turn and led me to New York. But you asked about childhood, and it's an interesting topic. And I, I, as you know, I ask my guests on my podcast, talking billions about their childhood and upbringing, because I think interesting things happen in those early years, and we get shaped in a certain way, whether we are talking about risk aversion or how we look for opportunities and how we think of wealth, money, and investing in general. And in those conversations, I discover that you can trace back some of the, the habits, the, the rituals, the routines, the principles that you have to some early experiences. In my case, I remember shopping for groceries with my grandma. And I don't know if she knew, but she was a very conscious value shopper. And she knew that there's a price and there's a value of whatever it is that you're trying to buy. And watching her find value and not overpaying for it stayed with me. So when I was reading about Benjamin Graham and Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger and uh, Sir John Templeton and everybody else that followed, I realized that the concepts are very straightforward and simple. It doesn't mean, doesn't mean that they're easy to, to deploy, but they're very simple. And you could shop for businesses the same way. So combining the idea that Peter Lynch had that you get to buy small pieces of businesses, but then think also about what kind of price are you willing to pay? So I'm always curious to find out why do I do what I do? And some of those principles were established very early on, as you mentioned in my particular experience. The big thing about what happened in Poland in the early decades of my life was that the first decade of my life, which was the 1980s, Poland was part of the Soviet bloc, which meant that there was no free market economy. 
the government owned pretty much all businesses. So you had to be an employee of a state-owned company. And think about it for a second, but if you did something that the government didn't like and they were the only employer in the country, that's not a very comfortable place yeah. to be. <laughs> and the system was so inefficient that it led to major shortages, at least in the state government-owned. So I remember stores being half empty. But then there was a gray or a black market in, in groceries and, and food products and other items. So you could buy them outside of the official stores. So the economy functioned not in a perfect way and not in a complete full way, but it functioned. And it made me realize that certain things that are very natural to all of us, like offering your services to good and goods to other people, that's how the economy works. When you put laws and rules that say you can't do it, by definition, you will make people frustrated and unhappy and that will lead to shortages. But then in 1990, around that time, a massive change happened. Poland reopened the free market economy, got restarted, the stock market reopened after half a century. And I got to see a massive change. And I think it took me another decade or two and a couple more degrees to really make sense of what happened. <laughs> a massive economic miracle. But I was about your age when the stock market was just reopening in Poland. And there were quite a few stocks that were listed, but not, not too many. I want to say maybe less than 10 at some point, major banks, major insurance companies. And before this conversation, I was thinking about me when I was your age, and I would write down the names of the companies in a little notebook, and I would write down prices every week. And I was trying to see, is there a way for me <laughs> to guess where those prices will go? And then I, I slowly lost interest because the stock market was so so small. So I only rekindle that interest down the road with Peter Lynch and, and other books that I read. But I remember that very new nascent stock market with a lot of ups and downs and, and quick bull markets and big crashes, but with very few stocks. So it's it's something that stayed with me because this stock market reminded me of the 1800s US market where you had the railroads and not that many securities traded and uh, quite a bit of volatility. It was a fascinating time, and I think it shaped me in many ways, and I continue to make sense of those years, and I think it has helped me on my path as an investor as well, and I, I trace back a lot of the ideas that I deploy these days and mindsets to those early days. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's, that's really interesting. I mean, when it comes to One Up on Wall Street, I think uh, it was the first book I read uh, when I was learning about stock market and value investing and investing and all so it has a it has i think a special place uh for me and also i think i got to learn a lot of the basic fundamentals that if i luckily my first book was that and not a book related to trading or a book related to um you know momentum investing etc so i think it really how did, how did you come across that book somebody recommended it to you uh it was it was actually the only book in our house that was <laughs> investing related um so yeah so my dad actually bought it when he was younger for himself to read but he he ended up you know leaving it i think after he read half of the book because uh, you know he realized that maybe it value investing investing is not his um, cup of tea and um but uh, he then asked me to read it, uh, and I think 
and and you know told me that it's a it's a good book if I want to start out. Um, and and then I I read uh, one up on on Wall Street, and I got to I think it really shaped the basic that uh, a stock is essentially an ownership in a in a business, and that um, over the long run, if you buy a great business, then that stock will um, will follow the path of the business instead of you know you having to be on the screen all the time trading looking at prices go up and down so yeah i think i think that shaped me a lot as well how old were you when you read that book i think i read it in 2019 uh, late 2019 so i was 12 i think i was 12 years old yeah but i think it's a, I it's a pretty, read that i think it's a i think it's a pretty 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 easy book um to read for a beginner because Peter Lynch doesn't mm-hmm. doesn't overcomplicate it. He just talks about his life experiences, his examples of dealing businesses. So that made it simpler. To me, also the big message from the book is that we all can do it. I gave a, a TEDx talk a few years ago about a great investor in you, and I, I quote Peter Lynch among others, the idea that all of us could and possibly should be investors and benefit from the success of, of businesses out there. And I think what gets lost, people talk about our performance, about becoming the richest person in the world, but that really is not the goal here. The goal is to make use of the capital that you continue to accumulate throughout your lifetime. So you continue to save, which is one of the first principles you can think of. And then if that money is deployed in a productive way by businesses you get to invest in through the stock market over the long run, that amount will continue to grow and possibly help you in life or give you options or offer you certain freedoms that you wouldn't have had you not had that kind of. And I think the beauty of investing over a lifetime is that you can continue to learn and the mistakes are relatively small. We manage money for families. So we are in a slightly different position. And I talk about a lifetime of contributions and a lifetime of distributions in some of my articles. And the kind of investing that you and I are talking about right now, where you put a little bit of money over time, over you know, 10, 20, 30, 40 years, each individual contribution, you don't have to be so focused on if it's a bull market or a bear market, it will all even out over time. And if you want to make it in a very passive way, you can invest in a broadly diversified index and participate in the success of the global economy or the US economy or whichever economy you feel closely associated with. And then over time, there are some huge benefits to being a a lifelong investor. Now then, the lifetime of distributions is a position that we're put in where there was a moment of, I would call it sudden wealth, whether inherited or through a big um, pay, through work in a big tech company or a successful sale of a business. And you start with a large capital upfront And you immediately have to know how to deploy it without taking certain risks and focusing on certain opportunities that make sense. So it's a mindset of of staying rich. And you have less time or no time to learn and make mistakes. And that's where we come in and that's where we can help with the experience we've had managing family fortunes over decades. But it's it's a slightly different and much more demanding position to be in because you don't have decades of small contributions to learn with. Just a, a food for thought when people think of 
contributions and distributions and a, and a lifetime of building wealth or keeping and growing the wealth that you already have yeah i think i think uh, the greatest the, the only rule about about value investing is is to not lose uh, money as i think mm -hmm. and i think our entire aim is to not buy bad businesses um and over time i think that does i think wonders uh when you think about you know how uh, money can also compound it's not linear uh, mm. it will increase time increase so it's, go ahead but i was going to add that you know it's a very powerful idea that the capital that we manage is the capital that our clients don't immediately need which allows us to invest for the long run but it's also the capital they can't afford to lose and what you mentioned the rule number one not to lose money i think it's a very powerful idea and a lot of people go into investing with focus on how much can I make, but I think it's very helpful to think for a second, what would happen if you lost what you're putting at risk right now? And what would be the consequences just so, so that you have the right, um, not even risk aversion, but more of a risk awareness. What if I lost it? Yeah. Um, and I think it's, it's not, it's not about, um, the volatility or the, You know that just mm -hmm. the movement of the stock going up and down um, rapidly. Rather, I think the idea of risk should always be um, the idea of losing capital, or you know, um, losing money. That's 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 important because you know if you if you one bad investment can I think ruin the entire um, sort of nature of compounding if you if you you know if you really deployed a large amount of capital. So I think we do have to be careful in that sense to, I think, conserve capital. Um, I think the entire aim is um, to conserve it and to grow it so that you can, you can, um, you know, fight with the fact that there is always inflation going on, um, bad um, economic uh, conditions. Um, I agree. So, Um, my second question is, since you, you run your own podcast and I think you've interviewed, I think, uh, I think lots and lots of guests, um, and a lot of them have really, really interesting backgrounds. They have really, really interesting stories, answers. So from all these different individuals, um, uh, what are some of the answers that you got or some things that you learned from them that surprised you the most or um with these people that you have now it's a fantastic question so the idea for a podcast i i write articles as you know and i wrote books and it's one way of for me collecting my own thoughts and organizing them and then also remembering what i thought at a given point in time especially in terms of articles so the crisis investing book that you mentioned is a collection of essays that i wrote throughout the covid pandemic But then I, I realized that there is another way to to share ideas. And uh, the podcasting world, I think, is going through some sort of a golden age right now on both sides. I think there are quite a few listeners that are really passionate. And I see in my own statistics how people listen to the end of the episodes, which I always I'm, I'm both grateful for. And I admire that somebody has an hour, an hour and a half of their day committed to me and my guest. So I, I thank everybody for that. But I think something really special happens when you sit down with somebody and have a conversation. And I, I try to make sure as much as I can that it's a conversation between friends and we kind of forget that somebody else is listening. 
And I think it's it creates this very intimate moment where for an hour you have somebody's full attention. And these are authors and successful investors and people that I know or the people that I knew of. And I had a chance to meet them in person. Quite a few people that have been on the podcast out of almost 50 right now, I met in person. And it's it's really fun to have them for an hour and go so deep and get to know them from a different perspective. Some of them I followed their newsletter for years, or I read all the books they published, but actually to sit down and say, what what did you think when you said that? And go a little bit deeper. But your question is, what are the big takeaways? And I notice how people from very different backgrounds and very different parts of the world have come up with the same principles that you and I started touching on in this conversation. And it comes from saving, the benefits of investing. So the principles, you could say that they're a secret, but they are not really until somebody discovers them. So the fact that stocks are small pieces of businesses, it's one of the, the big ideas. But once you discover it for yourself, you realize that many people know that. So as an investor, you keep on looking for an advantage. What is it that I can do that nobody else can do or doesn't do as well as I would do? And I like to say that I'm not smarter or faster than anybody else. I don't think I can process information quicker than many of the geniuses out there that have uh, the same access that I do. So I kept on looking for what is it that I can really do that fewer people choose to do. Maybe they could do it, but they don't choose to do it. And patience and, and discipline is a big part of it that I'm willing to wait. So when we buy a stake in a company, we're really willing to wait three, five, sometimes more years. And a lot of people say they're long-term investors, but when you actually look at their actions, there are not as many people that are truly long-term investors. So the patience, the other big piece of it, and I had quite a few people that are focusing on behavioral finance. I had a neuroscientist, Lucas Miller, on the show. I had Daniel Crosby, who studies the psychology of wealth and markets and has fascinating observations about it. How what we can do is we can find other ways that can create opportunities for us. And I like what Daniel Crosby told me. He said, when people think of behavioral finance, they see this as a window that you look through and you say, oh, of course, my neighbor would make this mistake. Oh, my sibling would do that, but I wouldn't. And he says, for a second, when you think about those biases that we have, look at what I write, he says, as a mirror and realize that if you're really honest with yourself, we're all humans. So we will make those mistakes. What is it that you can do to make fewer of those? Or if you make them, make sure that they're as small as possible so they don't really hurt you in terms of the losses that you mentioned earlier. And I personally do a couple of things to make my life easier. So for example, a daily quote, you talked about volatility. The stock market gives you a different price every moment of the day. And no matter how disciplined and patient you are, it erodes something in you and eventually you might give in and sell or buy for the wrong reason. So if you can limit your exposure to a daily price quote, I think that's very helpful. Then there's a big part about news and I know that you're, you're curious about it as well. Everybody writes these days and, and there are, everybody has an opinion out there online these days. There's an unlimited amount of 
not really data, sometimes it's just noise. So you have to filter out a lot of that because it will also erode any commitment and conviction that you had to any investment idea because you'll find somebody that doesn't like what you like. So building out those filters helps. But the, the last building block, the third one would be the right environment that you create for yourself as an investor. And here I mean anything from a space in your house or in your office all the way to even choosing a city or part of the world that you operate in. And when you think of Warren Buffett, Warren Buffett wanted to be in New York, wanted to be close to Ben Graham. He studied with him, but then he wanted to come back to New York to work with Ben Graham, which he did. But look what happened right after, and he was still in his 20s. He ended up going to Omaha, and I know you've been to Omaha. Omaha is a quiet city today. Can you imagine what Omaha was like in the 1950s? Yeah, yeah. It's really, really quiet even now. So this was before, obviously, the internet and uh, the world. There were phone lines and information also moved around, but it was a very different pace of life. But I think it helped him quite a bit to get more focused and not distracted by a big city. And look at Sir John Templeton, who moved from New York to the Bahamas. Look at Guy Spear, that I think you met as well, who moved from New York to Zurich, which is also a fairly quiet town, very organized, very structured. So I think being honest with yourself and realizing what kind of environment, all the way from your desk to where you choose to live and operate, how that influences you and creates a better environment for you to, to prosper over the long run. I spend most of my adult life in New York and it's a, it's a wonderful city. I love New York. And I would go to lunches, events and meetings and, and I think I learned a lot through that experience. But I also realized that there's a moment where it's easy to get lost and not know what you yourself independently really think. And what's your opinion about something? Because you get to hear so many opinions. I wrote a piece that I called Selective Ignorance. And I gave a talk in Zurich this summer, and it was one of the points I raised. And it, it really resonated with people much more than I expected. And it's the idea of choosing to completely ignore big parts of the market and big parts of the news world that don't serve you. And I share a story how when... Bitcoin was uh, having a hard time and, and uh, Sam Friedman Bank, Sam Friedman Bankman, whichever way I forget his name, <laughs> SBF, <laughs> SFB. Anyways, people were texting me with FTC and SBF uh, shortcuts and telling me, are you watching this? And I didn't know what FTC was and who Sam was. I was completely ignorant when it came to the crypto and Bitcoin world. And I'm curious about the blockchain technology behind it, but I feel like we got kind of lost interest in it and we got so obsessed with the currency. But anyways, at that point, I chose not to pay attention to that part of the world at all, to the point that I didn't know the names or the tickers or the names of the companies. And when people mentioned those names to me, I had no idea what they're talking about. So I got to the point where I choose not to pay attention to certain things because I feel like there's only that much mental and brain capacity available to us and we have to choose how we use it. I had a neuroscientist from UC Berkeley on the show, um, Lucas Miller, and I highly recommend his episode. He's a really thoughtful guy. I actually met him in Switzerland and he told me something that really spoke to me that our brains obviously are not wired for the world we live in. 
but also our brains are built for survival. So they continuously scan the environment around us. And when I say the environment, I don't just mean physical, but you know, your phone is a window to a much bigger environment, right? You would never know before that there was a fire on the other side of the planet. Now you do within seconds and there are pictures and videos. It's very stimulating and sometimes very disturbing as well. So the way I interpret what Lucas told me is that you have that battery of mental power and your brain is ready to be poked. People passing behind you when you're sitting in a cubicle in an office environment, which you haven't experienced yet, and maybe you don't have to be in a cubicle in your lifetime, you can work remotely. But if you do and you have somebody walking past you and you think, I don't care, it doesn't matter, your brain acknowledges that somebody was walking behind you and you get, you basically your train of thought gets disturbed in that moment and you can't continue working with the same capacity that you had a moment before. He also talks about the presence of a phone next to you. If you have a phone even face down next to you and they do tests and research, they show that you're not running at 100% of your abilities. So if you can use all those little, but not so little tricks and advice and insights, you can realize how can I use my brain to its best ability and be kind to your own brain and your body so that it serves you well on your investor or whatever path you choose to have, because quite a few of us will continue to use our brains in our career. So all kinds of lessons and observations. But what I'm learning is one thing is to know the principles. And I'm sure you're discovering reading, you know, writing your book, Worldly Wisdom, that one thing is to know the principles. And the second thing is to make them part of you, make them part of your mindset, your philosophy. And that's the second part is the hardest. And especially it's hard in moments of distress. We're all disciplined value investors until March of 2020 happens and the market loses 30% in a couple of weeks. Then fewer of us are as disciplined as we promised to be. Yeah, that's, that's very, very true actually, um, because the way I, I started out with, um, at least in the analyzing businesses and look at, I think I had a blog um, and over there it was like, market crashed uh and then right after the covid crash i think there were so many SPACs, so many ipos that were happening and i was just like like you know thinking every one of this is good but it's, it's not uh good companies a lot of them are really really bad companies and and i think we mistaken them because at, the, at those points in time it's, it's all about the greed it's all about the fact that everyone's making easy money let me, let me you know, jump on as well um and and just enjoy enjoy the ride but uh i think uh it's uh it's i think as i wrote in my book or as in as buffett also said um it's you know when you're doing these kind of things you're being um like cinderella but uh you're 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 playing in an arena where um the clocks don't have any hands so you don't know at all when it's gonna end when it's gonna hit noon before mm -hmm. the party ends um yeah so so i think that that have you, really with me so. have you lost money on your very first stock investment um so actually i made on my first few investments i made uh, lots of money because because after the crash we were recovering so it wasn't wasn't good businesses it was just you know easy um sort of money but then after that, when I continued doing that, I think I lost all of the gains that I made previously, uh, because because they were really bad companies. And then 
you know, luckily I, I, I sold um, um, after I lost, you know, I broke even. Uh, but if you look at them now, I think a lot of them are, are horrible. They're drowning in debt. They're, <laughs> and I feel, I feel really, in a way, uh, humble and also stupid for, you know, jumping in on these companies when they were so uh, bad, um, you know, and, and quantitatively. So I think right after I realized that I, that all the stuff that I made had evaporated, uh, mm-hmm. I think in a couple of months, I realized that this is probably not the right way investing works. And then there's, this is, this is not how uh, to continue. So I had to change, I had to adapt. And I had to also learn from living Buffet and Monger. So I think, I think a year, a year and a half, I just, I'm like, okay, I'm not going to um, learn about the market at all. I'm just going to focus about um, value investing and its core, its basics, its fundamentals. Because I think once you have uh, the right fundamentals after that, you can, you can apply. And now I'm like, if, if I see such a company, I'm like, nah, it's a straight no. Uh, so I think that's, <laughs> that's, that's it's good you- um, because I got an opportunity to, to learn. I think we underestimate how much we can learn from mistakes. And obviously we remember our own mistakes the best. It just works that way, at least for me. Now they're the most expensive because they cost not just money, but also time. But if you can learn from other people's mistakes, which is easier said than done, it's hugely beneficial. And even if you look at very successful investors. Warren Buffett jokingly says so many times how they, they made so many mistakes. And just look at the decisions he made and look that because the losses were not as big and not as meaningful, he could continue to go and make money in other investments. It might have slowed him down or he still thinks about them. But if you can study the mistakes of the greats, I think it can help you a lot. You'll notice when you did your research for your Worldly Wisdom book that there are more books about successes than failures. And there are quite a few. If you actually search for a book that has the word failure in it, I don't know if they don't sell. I would be a buyer. <laughs> But people are less willing to talk about failures. And as the, the idea of a survival bias, even if you look at funds or investors, you just see the ones that are still around, which is a great sign that they've been around for a long time. And the businesses that we see on the stock exchange. So when you look at it as a funnel of all the venture capital, all the ideas that were created, some of them disappeared. I think some of them are disappearing as we speak because I think funding for newer ideas has been uh, less available than it was during the, the SPAC era that you mentioned in 2021. But when you look at the, the funnel and you look at even the S&P 500, these companies have proven themselves time after time over a long period of time. So they're just the tip of a very big mountain with a lot of companies that have never made it that far. They never actually proven that they have a real business, a sustainable business, a business that they can defend. And I think to me, the, the big part of it is, what is it that we actually buy when we buy a stock? And we buy, and people, a lot of people know it, but for those that don't, You're buying profits, you're buying cash flows. That's the only reason to own a business. So when you think of it this way, whether it's a small business that's not on the stock exchange, of, you know, a privately owned uh, laundromat that has uh, 
a limited uh, upside in terms of you know, how big it can get, all the way to owning Amazon or Apple or Google or Berkshire Hathaway. The concept is the same. You're trying to see how much in profits this business can generate, for how long can it grow, how sustainable it is, and how am I, how much am I willing to pay for it? And that's that's as simple as it sounds, but as hard to do as it can be. Yeah, um, I think I think it, you know learning from your mistakes is 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 pretty easy if you're able to identify and accept that I made these mistakes. But uh, when it comes to I think other people's mistakes, we 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 tend to overlook them. Um, we don't really care, uh, and that's for a good reason because we we have our own things to do. But I think I think we should be noticing people's mistakes. And I think when it comes to businesses, I think we should be willing to own businesses that make mistakes, but um, that make small mistakes so that um, they don't they don't ruin themselves. They have the ability to continuously make I think small mistakes and then once in a while when you get a really really good um, you know uh, decision among those bad ones um, I think that play out really uh, well um, so while we are on the, the topic of mistakes so um, another question I had was because you stay away from I think you mentioned in previous podcasts and previous uh, I think in your blogs as well that the three things that you mainly stay away from um, are businesses with bad management, businesses that use leverage or debt, and then uh, you know businesses that are in an industry or companies that are basically in secular decline. So, are there any other warning signs that repel you away from the company? And my follow-up question to that is: uh, so, what were your biggest mistakes where you actually buy companies that weren't inherently good and had these uh, red flags or signs? No, it's it's a great question. So there are three sources of trouble that I identified over the years. And I, I keep a list of companies that I've owned, companies that I looked at, companies that I was intrigued by. I even keep a list of companies that I would never own, but I think they would be an amazing case study of what can go wrong. And I shared it in some of the articles. Now, those three groups, as you mentioned, bad management, too much debt, and secure decline. Uh, the funny thing is then sometimes those three things happen at the same time. You have an industry that's going through so much change that it can't produce the growth that it used to. And it's a tricky place to be because as a value investor of somebody that's looking for a bargain, you might end up in that segment of the market and not realize that it's it's not just a cyclical or a temporary slowdown. This industry is going through a massive change. And I think we'll see more of that going forward because of innovation and because of, it's a bigger topic, but when we spoke about profit pools, a lot of the biggest profit pools these days are in broadly defined tech companies. Different um, institutions that label sectors, they move companies around and companies that used to be tech, now they're called different things. But any company that's heavily relying on and technology, whether they're selling at space or uh, you know they're selling, um, it's, it's it's all at the end of the day, you know, technology company, and they're subject to change, much faster change than we've seen before. If uh, you're thinking about uh, chewing gum, that Buffett quotes quite a bit, not much has changed in the way we chew gum. He's right, but even in that part of the market, people are chewing less gum. And I think in some places, and I believe Singapore is one of those places, there are some big fines if you 
leave the chewing gum where it doesn't belong. Am I right? It's actually banned here now, so you can't chew gum. Uh, there you go. <laughs> yeah, it's it's yeah, it's even. You have the government tell you you can't you can't chew gum, but anyways, it's it's fascinating how the businesses are subject to change. So it's a spot that I try to avoid. You mentioned companies with a lot of debt, so that's debt allows you to look really smart when things are going the right way, and you as in. A business, let's say, you have the, the equity, the capital, but then you can use leverage. And when you use leverage and you grow only, you know, five or 10% with leverage on that equity, the returns that you get are very high. So you look like a genius. But you also have to remember that <laughs> leverage works both ways and people's, your dip in profits is not going to be just the 5%, but it could be 50% because of the leverage that you use. And sometimes the cut is so deep that the business is put in a position where it can uh, fail to survive and go bankrupt. I'm actually putting together a little article about bankruptcies. In my life, I owned tickets of three airlines that went bankrupt. And the first airline I held the ticket when I was a graduate student in Paris, and it was about the time I was uh, planning to meet Francois Sicard, who was my who was my business partner, who was at the time soon to become my my mentor and first boss, and we've worked together for twenty years managing family fortunes. And uh, the airline went bust, and I lost my ticket as a student, and my student budget was not so big, so I really felt the loss. <laughs> it made me think a lot about how do companies go bankrupt, right? If you have a company with no debt, with nice margins, profits, with a loyal customer base, and fairly honest management that tells you how things are, this company will not go bankrupt. A company that will go bankrupt is a company that borrowed too much money and eventually uses the bankruptcy laws to, to liquidate its operations or find another way to continue to operate by negotiating with the debt holders and so on not getting too technical about it, but basically debt can get you in trouble in the sense that you as a shareholder could end up with something that's worth zero. And I have this philosophy that you might have seen in my articles and the books that I have a no zero policy. I don't want to buy anything that could be a potential zero. And it's just a certain mindset that I have. It takes me away from big parts of the market, including companies with a lot of debt. Now, the management, I think it's one of the hardest things to evaluate. And I, I like to listen to earnings calls, read transcripts, read annual reports, and just see how, how are you speaking to me as a shareholder, but also as a customer, and how are you treating everybody? And I was in meetings where the numbers looked great. I couldn't find anything wrong. And I will would walk out of, from the meeting and on a human level, we were talking about behavior, but on a human psychological, emotional level, I felt very uncomfortable with the people that I just met. And I'm all about numbers and, and I see the scientific and technical side to investing, but there are moments where your intuition kicks in and it's something that's harder to pinpoint and quantify. And you might even come across that kind of experience when you're listening to somebody and you can tell that there's something not unauthentic about them and you can't tell what it is but the beauty of investing is that you can walk away and choose not to buy just because you personally don't feel comfortable being a part of this 
business operation as a shareholder. And I think it's something that maybe comes with time. Some maybe people have a gift and can tell, but you can realize that these, these are just not the people you want to be in business with. And that particular company a few years down the road had restated accounting issues. Uh, the CEO was fired. So at the moment, I couldn't tell what's going on. But over time, other people eventually <laughs> resurfaced issues with this particular business. But that's something to think about. The bigger question that you're asking, I would call it, what is it that I avoid? And I avoid anything that doesn't make sense to me. So when you think about what you're looking for, and if you're looking for, as I am, for the profit streams and profit pools out there, whichever image speaks more to you, then anything that has no profit, like a cryptocurrency, is not something I'm interested in. So these are parts of the market that I completely avoid it. The way SPACs were offered, SPAC is not a new invention, but the way they were used in 2021 to raise money and then to, to chase investments, to overpay for them, and then so on. And anything that becomes an overheated and too exciting part of the market, I completely avoid. Now, you have a lot of businesses that have failed economics, unit economics. So you have a business where somebody loses money on every square foot they rent or every used car they sell. Now, there is a difference between being a younger company that's still growing and that's still developing its business model, as you know very well, and a company that's been around for a while and still fails to deliver positive unit economics. So if they're losing money on every unit they sell, it's as if you're giving away $100 bills for $50. How fast can you grow giving away $100 bill for $50, running around Singapore you know, tomorrow morning? unlimited amount of money, right? So if you're getting bigger and losing even more money, eventually your shareholders will say enough. And that happened to many companies in the last few years where the market basically told them your business model doesn't work and you've been trying and it doesn't work. And the stock market might be very forgiving for a brief period of time, especially where there's, when there's a lot of euphoria and enthusiasm, but eventually the market says, this is not a real business and we will not continue participating in it. So I think of it as having the, the freedom to avoid big parts of the market that don't make sense to me. And I like to think of quality of sleep. If I was to hold something and I wouldn't be able to sleep well holding it, it's an immediate no for me. Now, when you're managing money for other people, you have to take into account, and I think it takes an unlimited empathy to take into account other people's emotions. So you might be a very well-versed investor and an analyst with all the understanding of the business, but for whatever reason, your clients don't feel comfortable with you holding that particular investment. That's something that's worth taking into account because at the end of the day, they entrusted you, their lifetime of savings, their inheritance, money that they received through some, some wealth event of a sale of a business and you have to take that into account and if they don't sleep well there's no point in holding on to that investment yeah that's very true i think uh i don't have any experience but from what i've read i feel like uh when when you're managing other people's money it gets uh i think you try to be more aware about the sleeping well part because you do realize um this is this is not just me anymore because if it's I make a mistake now a lot of people are going to get affected um and from just that perspective i think you feel uh, more 
I, I had Guy Spear on my podcast, and it's a wonderful conversation. And the moment that I, I really remember from this conversation is when he shared with me when he started managing his father's money. And he said uh, he was shaking because he felt the responsibility that he had for a family fortune. And there's a big difference between managing your own money and learning and growing with that experience than managing your family money or your friend's money and then opening up and managing clients' money. And I think it's another dimension that the investor can continue to grow. It's not just getting better at picking stocks or making it through bear and bull markets and finding opportunities, but taking into account that you're responsible for somebody else's money. And it's something that I was not taught at school. <laughs> I think it's it came from experience and actually sitting across the table with somebody and I think it's one of the most rewarding, but also one of the hardest aspects of being a professional investor, where you have to take into account how other people feel. And I mentioned it in my articles that people think that the bear markets are hard because the stocks are down and, and you know there are some paper losses to talk about. But I think it's the bull markets that are the hardest because this is the moment where your neighbor is getting richer than you. And somehow it really gets to people. And I want to ask you a question because in your book, you share a myth, an Egyptian myth that you might remember about envy between siblings. And envy is as old as humankind. And actually Charlie Munger said, it's not greed, but it's envy that gets people in trouble in the markets. Can you share with the audience that myth, if you remember it, and the idea of envy? Um, yeah, so I think the myth is that... Uh, there is there is Osiris and Set. Um, they are two Egyptian gods. They are, uh, they are I think, siblings um, in Egyptian mythology. And then uh, gets I think a really beautiful wife, and and he marries her. And then the two of them uh, live happily. But uh, Set, seeing this, gets uh, you know really unhappy because he didn't have a happy life. Uh, his brother did so with that he uh, he kills uh, um, you know his own brother out of the envy that uh, I didn't have um, what he has and and that I want the same thing and I want to be better than my brother and this eventually leads to I think um, him also getting even more miserable uh, mm -hmm. because um, also said is her wife uh, uh, hated Seth after that. And then after that, you know, the two brothers had fierce rivalries. They both, uh, you know, their entire relationship collapsed because of the jealousy and the envy that Seth had. So that is, a, I think, it's a fable in Egyptian mythology. Uh, and it's a good, it's, it's a very good idea because I think most uh, ancient stories, mythologies, fables um, sort of have this idea that there is there is some things are inherently bad um, when you're making decisions for example um, envy so this is I think the 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 mythology if I remember correctly the, the story yeah no it's it's a wonderful story and it reminds us that envy is just part of the human experience and in the markets well in life in general I think Envy can get you in trouble, but definitely 
in moments of great excitement in the market where you see other people get richer faster than you. Yeah. That's something that gets you in trouble. And I think so. Um, the fact that we've evolved to, I think, cater to other people's emotions and to be like other people, especially when we're, when they're doing good. So if you were in your caveman times and you didn't listen to when everybody else was doing something, then you would not be well off. You probably wouldn't even exist. Uh, so you, you, so we're wired in a way to follow, I think, the crowd, to follow um, the herd, and to also, you know, when someone does something better than you, you always have, you have that. And I think that's where a lot of problems also arise uh, in the world, you know, not just investing. It's very true. Yeah. So I think, uh, so, I, so in your book, uh, Outsmarting the Crowd, uh, yes, you did talk about this hurting and social proof and, and how this mindset really affects us when we're making decisions um, as individuals and I think as collective as a collective society as well. But uh, mm-hmm. so, how can we as investors realize that we have this um, bias in our minds and it's influencing our decisions? So, what are the the questions that we you could ask to, you know, prevent such a such a thing from actually being in our in our mental um, state, or mind. So, as you mentioned, on an evolutionary level, there is safety in being part of a larger group, because for most of our history as a species, we've lived in large groups, and it was helpful to follow what the group wanted. You didn't want to be excluded from the tribe. And in some cases, your survival was at stake if you were excluded from the tribe. So if everybody was saying that Bitcoin is a good idea and you're the only one that says Bitcoin is a bad idea, do you think you'll be invited to dinner when the next hunt happens? (laughs) But William Green in his book, Richer, Wiser, Happier, writes about one of many things that great investors have in common is that, that willingness to be alone or to be lonely. And he mentions uh, some quotes of uh, Chris Davis, who is one of the successful investors, how among value investors, you don't find too many people that like team sports, that people that play tennis or, or golf or they swim or they bicycle, but uh, not many people that participate in basketball or football or soccer. And I think it's, it's a certain mindset that those investors feel very comfortable being alone. And what I mentioned earlier is creating a certain environment where you give yourself a chance to hear what would you think if nobody else told you what to think. And these days when you open your phone, I have all the notifications off and I I don't see the daily headlines. When I choose to, I'll check them, but I don't have them pushed to me. But in five minutes, you have so many opinions from other people. It's a recession. It's not a recession. Interest rates will go up. No, they will go down. Uh, inflation is heating up. No, it's over. So you hear so many different voices and they start to cancel each other out. And the beauty of the crowd is that if you have large enough of a group, and there are studies that I mentioned in the book about you know weighing a bull and, and you ask everybody in the square in a town, I mean, imagine middle ages in Europe and there's a big bull on the stage and they ask everybody, write down how much that bull weighs. And they've done studies since that if you have a large, diversified, independent thinking group of individuals, 
that are not just influenced by what the person next to them is thinking, right? It's very important that they have their own opinion. You could end up with a fairly accurate estimate of how many um, pieces of candy are in the jar or how much does the bull weigh. So there is a certain wisdom to what the crowd can conclude from the information they collected, but you have to have them all with an individual opinion. I had Daniel Crosby, who is a psychologist on, on my show, and he said how if you have people individually make a decision, the decision is fairly accurate. But if you put them in a group where they start to communicate and get influenced by each other, so it's a group thing that I talk about in my book, Outsmarting the Crowd and Money Life Family as well, then it's an opinion of a group and you, you want to stay part of that tribe you end up going with most of the people and that decision that's influenced by a smaller group and everybody starts to think alike might not be as accurate and that's what happens in the markets where you have the madness of the crowd and there are books written about it it's not a new phenomenon but the stock market is this small, big lab where you can have people vote with their money. And if everybody wants to buy Tesla or everybody wants to buy NVIDIA or whatever it is at the given point in time, then you can have a very crowded-minded way of looking at things. And obviously, you can push up an individual stock to the levels of you know, madness. There's a story, an anecdote of Sir Isaac Newton who had many roles, not just a physicist, but he was a treasurer. He actually also invested in the markets and there was a bubble of his era, uh, the South Sea Company. And he um, made money initially, left the market and then came back because he saw his friends get richer <laughs> than he was. And uh, when you think of somebody like him, who I imagine being a very rational, very scientific very logical and very disciplined, something happens when you introduce the market. Something happens when you introduce a daily quote. And a crazy thing happens when you remember that we can be envious of other people getting richer faster than us. People call it greed, but I think Munger is onto something and you're onto something with the myth and the fable that you shared. And envy can get us in trouble in those moments. So I think the big lesson is benefit from the crowd when it pays to do so. So if you're choosing a restaurant, if you're choosing a book, if a lot of people liked it, it's fairly likely that you might like it. And uh, there are moments when it pays to disagree with the crowd. And that's where you can make a bigger difference in your investing journey, where you buy when others panic. The fear and greed that Buffett talks about, be fearful when others are greedy, be greedy when others are fearful. So we'd mentioned ownership of stocks, right? As something beneficial in your lifetime. And I think you'll do just fine investing a little bit over a lifetime, but you can do even better if you choose to invest more in moments when others panic. And I'm not talking about just the whole market, but individual stocks go through their own ups and downs. There might be a delayed product launch, um, a product recall, a management change, missed earnings that bring the stocks down. I mentioned it in one of the interviews how it's very curious to look at the 52-week range of any particular stock that you might like. So let's say you and I are talking and you end up liking some company, a very successful, I don't know, retailer or a tech company. And just 
out of curiosity, look at the price range that this company had, the stock price of that company had over the last 52 weeks. I think a lot of us, I'm always surprised what a wide range it is. And obviously, the last few years have been unusual, but even over a normal period, more normal period of time without a pandemic <laughs> and so on, you would notice that the same stock could be trading somewhere between $20 and $40. And I always wondered, what would it take for me to be able to pinpoint that moment when it's a $20 stock? And I call it down cheap out of favor moments where a good quality business for some reason is down cheap and out of favor. And these are the moments that you can act just because you've been watching it and you know that you like it and you wanted to own it. And that's the moment when you can buy more of it and make an even bigger difference in your... Yeah, I think that's that's a, it's a very true thing. I think Troy Blatt, he also talks about it in his book that he, mm-hmm. in his... In his if he's if he's going for a course or if he's you know he's teaching people at a university, the first thing he asks them is to look at the the stock price on a fifty two week high and a fifty two week low, and even mm-hmm. companies that are um that are meant to be companies that remain stable and they don't really fluctuate a lot, uh for example General Motors at that period of time or General Electric Electric or utility based companies even even with them, um they they I think they can be as high as $120. Um, and then a few weeks later, they can be trading as low as $30 a share, $40 a year. Um, you can see such a digression or such a, such a gap from the mean, which is... And, and, and if you keep showing up every day or regularly and, and keeping an eye on the businesses you want to buy, you might have an opportunity to buy more at a lower price. I want to highlight the difference between the private market and the public market. And and some of the audience might be familiar with the big difference between the two. But if your goal is to own businesses over a lifetime, you could be buying them in the private market. So walking around your town or your city and buying a share of a laundromat or a fast food franchise or a car wash or whatever it is that's available. You could be doing that, or you could be buying larger companies, you know, a wholesaler, a distributor in your region or in your province or in your state, all the way to buying shares in Amazon, who publicly traded and has been around for a while now. But the difference between the private and the public, there are many, but one big one is that the public market offers a daily price quote. So if you go to a private owner of a car wash in your town. Very popular, it's on the corner, great location. You can see the volumes are great. Even if your daily, own, your own research shows that this business has to be doing very well and people love it and they feel like they get great value. So you want to get 10% of that business. You walk over to that owner who probably has family member also involved. They've been running it for a while. Maybe it's been in the family for a while. And you say, I want to buy 10%. The price that they will offer it will be a fairly full price or maybe even a premium price because they don't really want to part with 10% of a good cash flow business that maybe they want to keep in the family. They really have to have a reason to sell you that business. And they have no motivation or limited motivation unless somebody in the family doesn't want to take over the business, then maybe they would sell it. So you have to have so much more context to have an opportunity to buy and the price you'll get will probably be a a full price. It doesn't mean that it will be a bad investment. Just be aware that it will be a fairly full price that you'll pay. Now in the public market, because you have this anonymous participation of a crowd of buyers and sellers with a whole variety of knowledge and understanding of what is it that they trade or buy and own, and also 
a very different time horizon. Some of them might be holding the shares until the market close. You have some high-frequency traders that hold shares for shorter than it takes a hummingbird to to move its wings, which happens these days with uh, some of those participants in the market, all the way to a foundation or a family trust that's buying those shares with intention to with an intention to never sell those shares shares again. So you have a whole variety of participants, and in that market, because of that crowd mentality that we talked about, there are moments that both the price can go way beyond what's full and fair or intrinsic, and it can go way way below that because of the crowd's vote. And that's something that you will not see in the private market as much. You will see a distressed seller in the public market. The crowd as a whole can get very distressed in moments of of panic. But if you have a private market distressed seller of a car wash, you might be asking yourself, why is that seller distressed? Maybe they're building a mall, a supermarket next to it, and the location will not be as favorable. There's something happening that will undermine the future of the cash flows. So that distressed seller is not a distressed seller you want to be talking to. But in the public market, the distressed seller is distressed only because of an emotional turmoil they're going through. It has sometimes nothing to do with the actual business. So that's something I wanted to highlight. Yeah, that's. I mean, I think when when you have um, a majority of people voting um, on a particular thing, you get a very good sense of how um, the company, you know, how how people perceive the company it may not necessarily be how the company is. It is it is their perception of it. And the funny thing is, um, you know, uh, the people that don't believe in in Asian market. Um, they believe in the efficient market and, and those kind of things. They they believe that okay, one day um, it can be trading at say ah, the price is trading tomorrow, which makes absolutely no sense, just because a news came or something that's not related to the business um, intrinsically or fundamentally popped up, and that's because uh, I think it also it also makes a sort of a loop because when people of feel that oh i did this 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 oh this news came out this seems to be stuff that's going to go to the moon and then they they um go you know buy it and then they see everyone else doing the same thing so they're like let me buy more of it um and just leads to this this fallacy um i really think Uh, Mm um and for the the um the idea that a lot of this is noise um a lot of business news is whether they are news about the economy, the macro uh, conditions, or about the micro conditions, the specific um, business um, operating environments or some down period for a short period of time. Uh, how do you how do you tend to identify um, when it's actually a bad um, business you know news that could harm it? And when it's actually just noise, because the line is a bit blurry sometimes. Well, there are many ways to look at it. I We have interns now and then with us, and, and they get excited about the, some of the stocks they're working on. And they bring me a piece of news, and they say, oh, this is really bad. And I make them pause for a second, and I say, what makes you think it's bad? Well, I say, well, because the stock went down 5% on that news. And I said, but you are a buyer right? You want to buy more shares of this company. 
So what you were about to buy just became 5% cheaper. Is that good or bad? And it becomes much more nuanced to them. When then they, then they start to look at the news and they start to see, does this impact the business in a permanent way? Is this news something that has damaged the business in a way that we can't recover from? And I think that's the way to look at it. What kind of an impact that what we just heard has on the actual business or it has only impact on the sentiment. I like to look when you talk about news and it's and the filter that you you have or that I I use, how long did it take to produce that kind of content? And these days it takes a, a moment to tweet and reach tens of thousands, if not millions of people. If if you tweet the right thing that seems to be you know <laughs> resonates with a lot of people. Sometimes it's a, a funny picture of a pet. And if something took a moment to create, I have a very different attitude towards it than something that took a while to produce. And when you think about it, and I think it was Nick Sleep that William Green talks about quite a bit and then Guy Spear was uh, inspired by and uh, who talks about uh, long shelf life of an idea. And I think others uh, also talk about it in various ways and label it in different ways. But the, basically, whatever piece of information or data or any finding that you have, how long did it take to produce it? How long will it stay valid? And if I asked you and you told me this is really bad news, and I would say if we meet in five years, do you think you will even remember this headline that you just quoted to me? And it makes you really think about it. And you might say, yes, this is really going to change this business for better or for worse. Or you might say, no, I don't think I'll even remember this conversation. And I think it's a good filter to have. Like, is this something that is relevant for the long run? When you look at not just the media, but a lot of investment meetings, um, I had Steve, Steve Clapham on the show, who is a seasoned hedge fund analyst, and he mentioned how a lot of meetings that he was a part of was spent on a discussion if the interest rates are about to go up or go down not just recently, but throughout his multi-decade career. And I told him, Steve, think about it for a second. If you know that so many investors spend so much time talking about something that's so short-lived, which he points out himself, then anybody that's not wasting that half an hour, an hour, and sometimes even more time on that discussion, what an advantage it is, right? Yeah. Go go for a walk, listen to uh, music or read a book or do something else in that time. But you freed up free up your brain. We talked about it, how your brain mental capacity is limited. But you free it up in that moment to do something else and not worry about the rates going up or down. I mean, Buffett sometimes jokes that if somebody whispered to him if the rates will go up and down, it wouldn't make a difference in what he's trying to accomplish, which is to find quality businesses he can hold for the long run. So think of it this way. Whatever you hear out there, who said it? What's their intention? How long did it take to write it? Will it be something that I will remember five years from now? And if it's still there and it's still on your mind, maybe it's worth investigating. But I think the bigger question that you ask is, where do good investment ideas come from? And it's never been a headline in a newspaper for me or somebody uh, writing up a profile in a major you know, financial magazine that I realized, oh, I never looked at this company. 
it's more the approach that Buffett has. And he had the Moody's manual where you had a one pager of companies and he would go for them one page at a time. That was obviously before the internet and before all the tools that we have today. But if you're new to investing and you want to start somewhere and you want to pick stocks instead of you know passively participating in the success of the economy, which is just fine with me, I think it's a great path, then go down the list. Whether you go from the largest to smallest or from A to Z, go one company at a time. And I've done it and I keep doing it because new companies keep showing up. And these days I've seen and I've looked at most of the companies I could potentially be interested in. And if something new goes public, I look it up, I read about it, and I'm curious to find out what's this business about. And I'm trying to understand how the business operates, would I ever own it? So any new company, I I just want to be familiar with it. And sometimes it's a five-minute experience and sometimes it's a longer experience where I want to get to know it. But I have some sort of an opinion about most companies that I could potentially be interested in and absolutely no opinion about companies I immediately rejected because of unit economics, because of high leverage or because of the management or, or other reasons. So think of it this way as just the learning process and being able to find out what is it that you want to own. And when the headline happens, the headline is just an invitation for you to go back to what we talked about which is the 52-week range or a five-year range, the stock that you followed for a while and that you know very well, for some reason, because of some silly short-lived headline, is now available at a 52-week low. Well, maybe it's an invitation to look at it because you already know it. That's how I look at it. I think, I think Peter Lynch um, said, I think in one of his speeches, that you spent, I think, 13 minutes in your entire year talking about um, the market and interest rate and inflation, you wasted 10 minutes of your life. Um, mm-hmm. So he says that. And then um, I think another very true thing is um, that sometimes you don't need, I think we, we feel like we have to have an opinion on everything. Um, we have to be giving our views aggressively, and, you know, fighting for them. But uh, for for some things, I think it's better if you just you know just take the popcorn and watch the story play out instead of <laughs> you know having to, to participate in it um, because it's, you can yeah no no it's it's very true and I think we all find and you talk about the circle of competence what is the area that you feel that you can have some advantage in. And that circle of competence will change over time. So I imagine that, you know, even Buffett grew and changed his entire investment style through the decades. And I think anybody, you and I, will continue to grow and change. So allow yourself to expand. But being honest with yourself, back to what I mentioned with selective ignorance, the parts of the market and the parts of the the news world that you just choose not to participate in be kind to your brain, you know? <laughs> That's how I look at it. Yeah, because, you know, it, it is it is really mentally daunting as well. Uh, so I think I think Steve Jobs or, or someone, I think the reason he used to wear the same clothes every day was because he didn't mm-hmm. want to waste his brain energy on choosing his clothes as well. So... Mm-hmm. That's, that's such a small thing when it comes to stocks. It's like a huge thing. We spent so much time on irrelevant stuff that... Um, when you when you get 
focus on the the minutes of, of of things you tend to forget that there's a bigger picture um, that's available and i think that is uh, oh, absolutely big absolutely and and i think over time you develop those habits like steve jobs of you know wearing the same thing but in the investment world maybe never owning a certain sector for example that you don't feel comfortable owning maybe never investing uh, outside of your own country or maybe investing everywhere else but your country right so you choose your own <laughs> your own formula and uh, see what really works for you the beauty of investing is and i was talking to william green on my podcast about guy spear and manish babrai and I'm, i'm sure you know all all of them but uh, that they're friends and they're close and they they talk and they share the same principles they had lunch with warren buffett they come to omaha together i saw both of them in omaha this year i think you ran into them as well and they have a very different way of looking at investments and a very different tolerance for risk so the beauty of investing is that you can be close friends with a lot of fellow value investors if you're looking for one label although i don't think it's uh, it encompasses everything that we're trying to do but uh, in that group you will have people that follow the same principles but express it in different ways and look ping it back to the childhood experience we were all shaping a different way so what i would tolerate might not be something somebody else tolerates and what somebody else tolerates which is possibly you know a potential zero in the portfolio and a bankruptcy and they feel comfortable and they know what they're doing i don't want to share the experience right so you choose your own place in this very wide range of what investing can be to you yeah so in that in that um in that sense i think because well, you did say peter lynch has played a huge role in your philosophy um and a large part of it is also you know buying good companies but also structuring uh your portfolio in a good manner um mm -hmm. in a manner that that's suitable for you so for you um do you do you categorize stocks into different groups um as peter lynch told his boss etc and then balance it according to that and remain highly diversified like him or do you tend to um and is that is that growing on you the approach of of concentration so it's a great question and everybody will go about it in a different way and i think also for throughout your career you might go about it in a different way so i'm thinking of warren buffett in the early days buying ben graham style stocks and ben graham actually used to hold a lot of stocks because he didn't know which one will go bust so it's a very different mindset all the way to buffett in the more recent years sometimes having you know 30 50% of his equity portfolio in in one or two holdings i personally and we as a firm as secret associates we tend to hold somewhere between 30 to 60 stocks we're mostly us focused although we've owned foreign stocks and in terms of position sizing it's really interesting because when people say i like this particular company i'm always curious do you like it as a 1% position or as a 10% position right it's a different kind of liking or not liking a particular investment so we try not to have big weights so the positions can run up to you know 4 or 5% sometimes but it's a fairly diversified portfolio but when you think about the universe even the S&P 500 with 500 stocks or some of the indexes have 2000 stocks or 5000 stocks picking 30 60 stocks that you really like and want to hold for the long run 
It should be achievable for most of the time. You might use cache as a buffer sometimes and dry powder, which we do, that we can deploy quickly, like we did in March of 2020. Now, in terms of categories, we say that we have a group that's good quality businesses. There are some businesses that are more cyclical. And the last part would be more of a, like a unique, special situation, an unloved or underfollowed company. But those things change. I would look at it in a more nuanced way and just think of when a stock ends up in the portfolio, I think you should be very honest with yourself. Why is it in the portfolio? So you might be buying a company with limited growth and Peter Lynch has the slow growth, the faster growth and then turnarounds and so on. But the idea is that if you put a stock in the portfolio that's a slow growth company with a high dividend, high cash flows, remember that it's at a different stage of its life, right? So you have very different expectations and a different role that it can play in the portfolio. And then at the end, other end of the range, let's say you would have a fast growth company that has promising unit economics, but has not generated substantial profit yet, but has a very clear path to do that in a foreseeable future. That company obviously has no dividends. It might've been issuing some stock or maybe just went public and raised some capital. It's a different stage of, a, of its life, right? So you have very different expectations. So when you look at the two A and B and you say, well, I want the A to go up a hundred times, these are, unreasonable expectations. This company will not go up that much, right? It may pay the five, six, 7% dividend. It may still appreciate. It may still do some things on the cost saving side. Now the fast grower, you could be all frustrated and saying, I'm waiting for it to pay me a dividend. Well, these are also the wrong expectations for the stock, right? Because the stock may take another decade to start paying a dividend and probably for a while will not be a very satisfying dividend. So you have to go in with the right expectations and being honest with yourself. Why is this stock in the portfolio? Now and then people ask me, can you recommend a stock? And I, I don't usually do it. I always say, well, this is a stock that we've been working on. This is why it's interesting. And I, I make an exception once a year for one of the, the conferences where I share, share it more as a case study. Because I always tell people, I don't know your personal situation or the situation of your clients. I don't know what kind of role this stock could have in your particular portfolio. So I can tell you why I found it intriguing. I can tell you how it plays a role in the portfolio for me. It might be a dividend generating stock or it might be a fast grower. But the lesson in the whole big picture idea here is that I get to own a business. I bought it at a price that made sense for me. And I can see how it will have a contribution to the performance, to the end result of the portfolio. Just being honest with yourself, what kind of a stock it is. And when people say buy and hold forever, I like the idea. But if you're buying in an industry that's cyclical, which is something that people sometimes ignore or forget about because our cycles have been a bit disturbed by the pandemic and by <laughs> other events of the last few years, but cycles do exist and companies go through their ups and downs. So if you know that you're operating in a cyclical industry and you're buying the best of the best or the worst of the worst, whatever appeals to you in that particular industry, remember that no matter how good the management is, no matter how good the strategy is, there will be a cycle in that cyclical industry. And even companies that are consumer staples, they go through their ups and downs as well. 
But obviously, in the cyclical industry, you can have a company that is generating a hundred million in profit in a good year and a fifty million dollar loss in a bad year, right? So you have to go in with the right expectations and not be confused and compare it to a steady grower in a very stable, predictable industry. Just be aware of what industry am I in, and what kind of expectations should I have. So that's that's a more nuanced way of looking at. The categories or the portfolio structure, and how you think about building a portfolio. I just want to mention a word about cash or idle cash in the portfolio. So when people want to think about managing a family fortune, which is the position we're in, we obviously have the holdings that we like, and that's where ninety-five percent of my attention goes. What kind of businesses I want to own, but I allow. The cash position to go up and down depending on the availability of the investments I want to buy, depending on the price that they're offered at at a given point in time. So when I'm in a situation where I see I have quite a few stocks I want to buy, but the prices are getting higher and higher and more disconnected from what I feel that the the fair or intrinsic value is, then the cash position will start to grow. And there are times when the market corrects and I can. Buy a lot of ideas at ten, twenty year low, as it happened in March of twenty twenty. We had some incredible businesses available at five, ten, twenty year low for a brief period of time. I was hoping it will be much longer. But in moments like this, all the cash or most of the cash gets deployed. So you allow yourself that kind of flexibility, and it's a bigger topic. But Buffett himself has quite a bit of cash on the balance sheet. So think about it when people want to be fully invested and participate fully in every bull market move. Having that cash gives you quite a bit of optionality in moments where you can make a big difference and pick up something at a twenty-year low and then hold it for the next twenty years. It's very, very true to an extent because we do forget that you don't have to always remain hundred percent invested. Um, because、mm-hmm. there are times where there are better opportunities than there are currently, so there is no point、um, buying a company now just because you want all your money to be in the the market when you could be waiting, say, three months later or a few months later, when the economy actually does pretty bad, and then you can really jump on your ideas and bet big on them、um, and really load up the truck when you need to. And then the other thing that I、um, sort of resonated with me was the idea that businesses in cyclical industries、um, they are they are different from businesses that are in say a normal industry,、um, mm-hmm. and that is that is something to to keep an eye on.、Um, and the funny thing about cyclicals is that they seem the cheapest、um, when <laughs> they're doing the most well, and they、yes. seem the most expensive when they do. Doing the worst,、um, so、uh, that is very unlike a normal stock,、um, because a normal stock would look cheap when it's, you know, doing, you know, bad, and、mm-hmm. will look expensive when it's doing good. But for cyclicals, it's, it's the opposite, and it's mainly because at that period in time they're generating a lot more cash than they actually do generate, and that is it's a very interesting thing to keep in mind because I do think the industry. Um, plays a role, I think. For you know, you mentioned aviation、um, earlier. So the aviation industry as a whole is not an industry、um, where <laughs> people earn a lot of a lot of money. So 
uh, that plays a part too. If you're in an industry where you just tend to earn money uh, in an easier manner, then you 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 would do better than peers in other industries that don't have that ability to earn money. That's that's very true. I I want to add to it and mention when you talk about the cyclical, just they're not all alike. So there are different industries, and a cycle in one industry might mean a completely different thing than in a different industry, right? So what I find very helpful, and it's available, you know, you can go to the investor relations section of a company or find any of the websites that aggregate financials. But if you're curious about a business, take a look at the last five and sometimes 10 years. And if you took the name away, and if you took the description away and gave me and you 10 years of financials or five years of financials. But I like 10 years because 10 years, I, I have a chance to maybe grab the ever cycle in that 10-year period. You will tell right away, are there cycles or are there no cycles? That's one thing, but you'll also see what happens with the balance sheet. You'll see what happens with the cash flows. How are they growing? Are they growing for acquisitions or it's mostly organic growth? Are they redeploying quite a bit of capital back into the business or they actually have limited capital needs? So the financials can take... And some cyclical businesses have a dip where the profits are, let's say, half of what they are at the peak. And then there are cyclical businesses where you have losses equivalent and sometimes bigger than the peak, right? So you have to look at it. And it's a very different experience for the business to be going actually through the hard part of the cycle where they are draining the cash that they had. So if you have an aggressive management that's borrowing money at the peak, fooling everybody into thinking that this is the new normal and they will never have a cycle again. And then with this excess debt, they have to make it through a, through a downturn. Quite a few companies fail. The interesting thing happens that the surviving companies can take market share from those players that are too aggressive, too irresponsible. The airlines, I think we can have a whole episode about airlines. I, I don't own airlines. I, I never owned a bankrupt company. I was actually thinking about it as I was collecting notes for my upcoming article where I want to share my thoughts about bankruptcies and my experience owning three tickets of three different airlines at three different points in time that went bankrupt. But I never owned a stock that went bankrupt that I held in the portfolio and I saw it dwindle all the way to zero. It, I never had that happen to me, knock on wood. But it's a conscious decision that anything that could be a potential bankruptcy making, I just don't want to participate in. But that's my personal professional choice. I know people that are very successful investing in almost bankrupt or companies that are recovering from a bankruptcy. So kudos to them. They chose a different slice of the market that they want to participate in. But think about it, a cyclical business with a lot of debt, with a very aggressive management going from a downturn, that's a bankruptcy risk that you should consider. <laughs> But something to think about because everybody thinks that uh, all businesses are here to grow and prosper. Even businesses that have very nice growth and sustainable growth go through their downturns as well. The consumers are not made of steel. There are times when they get pressed and they will not buy another smartphone or they will not renew a subscription for the streaming service. So remember about the cyclicality of the businesses. That's something I, I think it's worth considering. Capitalism is, is brutal, as, as they say, uh, when it comes to businesses, it, because, yeah. Yeah, it, it, it can be. At the end of the day, if the business cannot produce a profit and uh, there's no profit in sight, eventually, as we spoke, the market says it's, it's enough. 
I have no problem with having an institution organized around a different goal than a profit, right? But then you call yourself a nonprofit or a foundation. And there are some companies that openly said that their goal is not to ever generate a profit. I can, I think we can mention WeWork here, who actually in their official filings, and people can look it up, said that they don't expect to generate a profit in the foreseeable future. Well, then you become a nonprofit, <laughs> and then you rely on donations, and you don't ask a public shareholder to participate in it, because I think it's unfair to have a public shareholder in a business that promises to or doesn't commit to generating a profit in the foreseeable future. And it's absolutely fine, but it's then a nonprofit path for this particular venture where you give away a $100 bill for $50. That's that's a nonprofit. That's, that's very, that's, that, is, that is, in a way, I think it's it's deep because I think we, we live in a time where people don't really care about profit uh, as in, you know, normal the the average investor they don't they don't care about profit it's all about what's the story about it you know is it gonna be up ten days later or is everyone does everyone think it's it's a, it's a good company and I think a lot of people feel that you know just because you don't make a profit you're growing but that's not mm -hmm. true um, and you can also grow with profit so it's not a bad thing to make profit profit is the entire aim of a of a business or a company. Um, mm -hmm. They live to make money. So if you're not making money, what, what are you doing? Well, think of a business as an activity organized by people, and it serves other people, right? And uh, the difference between a, a profit, a profitable business and, and a non-profit activity is at the end of the day that you have some sort of positive unit economics and you can make money providing that service. There's nothing wrong with never achieving that goal, but being honest that it's a foundation, it's a nonprofit, and there are institutions that do a remarkable work out there by helping people and, and serving, never really thinking about a profit, and they rely on donations. But uh, once you invite a public shareholder, the story changes. What you're touching on is being a speculator and an investor. So you're talking about people that might not even know what the business is all about, and they like the name, they like the ticker, and they definitely like the, pri uh, the price going up and they'll buy it and they hope to sell it to somebody for more. But that's that's speculating. Buffett said something interesting because he said there are many things that trade out there, right? You, you have a price for a lot of things. But if you want to be an investor, you don't have to participate in, in anything. Just because something trades and has a price doesn't mean it has a value. I think that's where he's going with that. And if your approach to investing is, I want to sell it to the next gullible participant at a higher price, that's a very different mindset. And I know that there's nothing about it in your book, or if anything, it's not a, it's not the goal of your book to recommend that kind of thinking. But if you become an investor and you care to own a business for a while and actually get to see the profits and see the benefit, then it's a very different mindset. And I feel like it's a very clear decision of what you want to make out of your participation in the stock market, something that we started with. Is it a casino or is it a place where you get to buy small pieces of businesses and become a very proud shareholder? When I was in Omaha this year, I wrote a, an article uh, since I came back, I called it Return on Kindness. And uh, I realized, and, and it's uh, maybe obvious to some people that in Omaha, we're not really praising Buffett, we're not really praising Berkshire, 
it's the shareholder of Berkshire that's on the pedestal here. All the people that benefited from the hard work and the success of not just Charlie and, and Warren, but all the businesses that this massive company had stakes in and all the employees that showed up every day to sell insurance, to sell homes, to do everything else around the world. And we get to benefit as a shareholder. And you can come to Omaha with one share, but you can come to Omaha with your lifetime of savings and billions of dollars as a shareholder. We're all shareholders that get to sit and listen. And at the end of the day, benefit from the success of all those businesses. I, I think it's a, it's a remarkable concept to think about that anybody and everybody could potentially be a shareholder in this business or any wonderful business that's out there available to you. I think it's, it's important to be proud of something um, you own because then there's no point owning it if, you don't, if you're not proud of it. Uh, in, uh, and, and also I feel that um, in, in Omaha, I think the way Berkshire treated, treats its um, shareholders is probably the best um, throughout, uh, you know, any publicly traded company on the stock market because they do see um, shareholders as um, partners in business. It doesn't matter, as you said, it doesn't matter if you're, you're a larger partner, if you're a smaller partner, we're all partners um, and we're all here to benefit together. Um, and I think in your return on, on kindness article, you, you wrote as well that while, you know, um, the company grows, the company does well in that process, you also award, um, those holding it and you give back to society in a sort of a way, because now here are normal everyday people earning from the businesses they love doing good. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, so that is a that is a very powerful concept, I think, especially in the stock market that now we can earn money from something we love. Well, when you think about it, a business that stays around for a long period of time, it means that it's doing something right, not just for the shareholder or the original owner, but also for the customer, for the supplier, for the whole universe. Like to be really successful over the long run you have to treat everybody with certain respect. And uh, Buffett has done a remarkable job and, and you can read stories about him, even in extreme situations when he had to liquidate some operations, what a hard time he had letting people go and, and how some industries just ran out of its uh, you know, runway and ran their course, uh, textile businesses, a shoe uh, manufacturer that he owned at some point. But when you think about it, if the business treats all the participants fairly, it has a chance to, to last a long time. And in that article, Return on Kindness, I was emphasizing what I walked away from this meeting, and it wasn't my first, that when you treat everybody well, they want to do business with you. If you treat your customers well, they want to come back. If you treat your suppliers well, they want to give you a better deal or be there for you in moments that might be harder for you. So you create this entire environment. And that's what businesses are when you think about it. Humans coming together and creating something that's much harder, if not impossible to do uh, on your own. You know, and an iPhone is created by so many different participants and so many different suppliers. And then it's, it's sold around the world and you have consumers around the world using it in a variety of ways, hopefully more beneficial to their life as well. 
staying in touch with friends and learning about the world. But when you think about it, you create this massive organism and those organisms start to coexist. And it's almost like a biology lesson here, how this whole thing can coexist. And even in nature, we have organisms that get along and benefit from each other's um, you know, companionship with trees and mushrooms and the whole environment. The economy is the same. And actually, if you let it be, and you asked me about my early childhood in Poland, the government didn't allow businesses to be owned by private individuals, except for a florist, maybe, and, and somebody with a tiny grocery store. But everything else was owned by the state. So you took away a very natural right and freedom of a human being to go out there and sell their gifts and skills and experience and talents to the world. I want to bake bread, right? So become a baker. And I want to make a little bit of money on every loaf I sell. And because I make a profit, I choose to wake up at 3 a.m. So there are fresh loaves of bread available for people commuting to work uh, before they go to work or whenever they're shopping. So when you think about it, the whole system continues to work because everybody makes a small contribution and sees a salary or a profit as their incentive to keep going. When you start putting roadblocks, the system creates something that is not as rewarding or fun to see and creates paradoxes and shortages. So creating a full loop in our conversation, the beauty of the fact that you, with even small amount of money, can become a shareholder of a business, I think it's phenomenal. And if you have a family fortune that you're responsible for, having a place to go to find income-producing assets, which stocks are, and allow that wealth to continue to grow and perpetuate and, and serve the next generation, it's a beautiful place to be. And uh, the stock market offers just that. So when you think about it and look around at everybody participating in the stock market, they're all people with all kinds of goals and intentions. And you just have to be honest with yourself. Why am I here? Why am I buying this stock? And as long as you give it some thought, I think you'll make a better investment decision and maybe miss out on some of the mistakes that we talked about. That's, that's so true. I mean, I think... People, people are willing to spend time, um, you know, researching for a car they want to buy, researching for a house they want to buy, but they don't want to spend the same amount of time um, on, you know, a stock that they want to buy. It's like, it's the only place in the world where someone who's driving, say, a Ferrari or Porsche, uh, you know, listens to someone on the subway on, on what stock to buy, because we, we don't care about our stocks, but I think that that mindset has to be changed. Um, that uh, if you want to be an investor, you gotta you gotta really like them. You gotta really put your effort in, and once you do your mm -hmm. due diligence, you get you get rewarded from the profits that your companies earn. I think we all love being sold on things, and it's a dangerous place to be when it comes to investing. So we see ourselves as buyers. We buy stakes in companies and we hold them for the long run, and we do the same with our own money and with our clients' money. We never really sell anything. If the approach that we have, a patient discipline approach with a long-term view resonates with people, they gravitate towards us and they become clients, but we don't really go out and, and seek and sell what we offer. If anything, it, it's about building a relationship and trust with a new individual or a family that we get to work with and they find what we do and our experience relevant on their journey and they see benefit in what we've learned managing some of the family fortunes that we manage date back to the early 1800s and it's pretty remarkable 
to see the successes. And I've been with uh, my team for two decades. My senior partner has been managing some of the, the legacy assets that are still with us since 1969. And he's former boss, um, late boss who passed away since even before. So when you think about all the lessons that you can learn in the idea, with the idea of, of staying rich and growing wealth over time, you can find those opportunities in the stock market and um, find a way to perpetuate that wealth through ownership of businesses throughout time. And they might not be the same businesses 50 years from now. You mentioned GE, GM, both of them are not as um, you know, big and successful as they were in the past. Okay. But if you have a family fortune or a family nest egg, your wealth can move on to the next businesses and the next businesses over time. Warren Buffett started with a selection collection of businesses that are no longer with us, including the original Berkshire Hathaway textile mill operation. But think about it then, the wealth that originated in the textile, well, his fortune was before the textile mill, but Berkshire Hathaway was a textile mill when he took it over. You know the history of textile mills, and you might want to look up Adam Mead, and he was a guest on my podcast. You might know him, but yeah. he writes about the history of, of Berkshire. And the original fortunes that funded the textile mills in the, the Northeast in the US were from the whaling fortunes that even went back to the 1800s. So when you think of wealth and capital as this energy that keeps on flowing to the next collection of sectors and industries, think of it this way, you and I are talking today in 2023, the businesses you and I are own, gonna own in 30 years, they might have not been even invented yet. But that's the beauty of it, that we'll continue to find satisfying uh, opportunities going forward. And as much as I like the buy and hold idea, I think we have to look at it in a more nuanced way that there will be different businesses creating big profit pools in different parts of the world, in different markets than we imagine today. And it's just fine. And as investors, we'll continue to learn. You called your book Worldly Wisdom, but the big part of it is you'll continue to learn and discover before we started, I asked you, have you read all the books you wanted to read? And you said, no, there's more. <laughs> and and in a few years, there will be even more. But that's the beauty of this pursuit. It's a very intellectual, very rewarding pursuit. And the fact that you get to grow wealth as you are learning about the world, I think it's a bonus. To me, the, putting the pieces of the puzzle together and making sense of all, all of it, how it all works, it's so much fun. And if I'm more right than wrong, then the snowball, using Buffett's description of the capital, the wealth, will continue to grow. And you, and when you look connected in the sense that every sort of discipline, every mental model, every subject, you can apply it into another area um, that is completely unrelated and it will make perfect sense. Um, like just how you, you, you know, a few ago talked about uh, ecosystem biology and mm -hmm. you know put it in the economies and these two ideas are linked together yet they're so different um from each other and and when you apply one to another it makes so much sense and i think you see the world through a clearer uh, lens and uh thing i think that's what this entire journey is about um and then with with you know you talked about um, owning you know buy and hold and I think in crisis investing I did one of your essays that you said that is increasingly harder for 
for us to keep holding businesses for you know ever because just because of how how much of a rate of change we have um, nowadays so in that sense views are you on the time frame time frame do you sell when it reaches intrinsic value at overvalued price or do you sell when there's something that is bad that goes really really wrong about the story or the, the, the business so i'll start with the end of your question i i sell when something goes wrong and i sell when the investment case that i had in mind will not play out the way i thought and sometimes we just find a better idea and and we move on that happens too so it's a lot of flexibility on that front the intrinsic value if it's a growing business and a successful business that's deploying capital back into its operations will continue to grow so first of all the intrinsic value as a concept it's not one number right so if you look and research uh, i don't know walmart and you come up with a number and you say i know the intrinsic value is this much that's not how it works intrinsic value is a concept of discounting future cash flows to today you have so many moving moving parts in it right you you have the discount rate you have um the unpredictable part where when these cash flows will arrive and will they be in the amount that you thought and for how long they will come to you and those those components make it pretty much impossible to come up with a precise number so by definition you have to give yourself quite a bit of wiggle room and realize i think the range is somewhere between this and that much and subject to change as i continue to learn about the business i think that's very important to know because in finance for some reason some people look for precision and some people look for a way to be right and i think it's a dangerous place to look at it this way i like to say that i want to be the least wrong when you really think about it i just want to be to the least wrong which i think is hard enough and when you think about an investment and it's a successful investment that intrinsic value will continue to grow and evolve over time it can be even shrinking if you're in a secular decline kind of a business now if you look at the life of a company back in the 1950s there are studies that show that companies would belong to the top 10 or 50 or 100 companies for many decades so you had a company that dominated a particular segment or a sector and they would just stay at the top for a long time and nowadays that time is a lot shorter and even if you look at the S&P 500 of today or 5 years from now you you would be surprised and i think people don't appreciate it enough how big of a change has happened even in the index that we all seem to be so familiar with how many stocks left and were added to the index in the last 5 10 i'm not going to even say 20 years because you'd be surprised and you would say what are these companies because people even forgot their names so the change in that sense is happening very quickly now from our experience uh, managing family fortunes and i write about it in money life family how the initial fortune usually is created in one place one business one country one location usually and that's the wealth creating moment even if you have a big pay from one company that you committed 10 years to and you walk away with a substantial what feels like sudden wealth it's one bad one moment or if you uh, sold an individual business if you had a pay now from that point on you shift your mindset if you choose to 
from getting rich to staying rich. And it's a very different experience. The, the kinds of risks you're willing to take and put yourself for a moment in a position of a family or an individual that is sitting on a substantial capital that they're not in a position to ever make all over again, possibly. It may happen, there are some exceptions, but usually not, doesn't, you know, doesn't happen. So you have that sudden capital and that capital has to be invested over time. You think of, of risks and rewards in a different way, but you can go away from this one single business that you are operating in and you give yourself permission to build a portfolio of investments that make sense for you over the next few years. And that portfolio will continue to evolve and change. So if anything, I see it as a, a freedom to pursue opportunities as they arise. Families that have a family business have a peculiar challenge. I had a great conversation with Ted Oakley. I highly recommend his episode on my podcast, Ted Oakley. He, he talks about the fact how people go from this mindset of getting rich to staying rich. But that initial business that the family created, the family is so emotionally invested in that business. To part with that business means a lot of things for them. So some in some situations, you might stay and overstay in a particular business for too long. So imagine that Buffett inherited Berkshire Hathaway to textile mill because his family has been in textile mills for three generations, right? Imagine that. And Buffett says, well, it's the only thing I know. I've never invested anywhere else. I will stay in the textile mill because I feel safe in that industry. Now, what happened in the textiles in the US was an accelerated decline and eventually the whole industry moved away and, and changed completely. And Berkshire Hathaway, if it stayed in textiles, would have been gone by 1980s. But he came with a very different mindset and he realized I can build a portfolio with the capital that the textile mills are producing and go in a completely different direction. And that's the mindset that a family that created wealth in one individual business can follow and choose to pursue and then grow the wealth in many different industries. All this to say that the stock market gives us an opportunity to not even guess what the new industries are, but be aware and continue to learn and see what other new profit pools get created and how we can participate as shareholders. So I'm, I'm excited about it. And as much as I think it will keep us more alert that we can't just buy five companies and never sell. And I think it will also make it more exciting. I'm always curious about new companies, how they're figuring out a way to generate a profit and what is it that they offer. And I'm very excited to see how the portfolios will continue to evolve. They're not set in stone. I, I think that's a very important thing to remember that we will all have to continue to learn and grow and see. I think what you what you said earlier, um, I think that it was that is really important that you have to keep your biases away when you're making the selling or, or buying decisions. Sometimes it can be, you know, I spent so long researching on this. I don't want to sell it now because my time's wasted. Um, and then it can be as strong as, you know, uh, my late grandmother or my late, uh, et cetera, said that hold this stock forever, you know, even when I'm gone or something. And then that emotionally sort of attaches you to the company. But uh, I think we have to remember um, the thing you mentioned in the, the, the starting of the podcast that um, the stock doesn't know that you own it. Um, and, and so 
because of that, it doesn't matter if you own it or if you don't own it. Um, it's going to behave depending on how well the underlying business does. Um, and we have to keep that in mind. And then based on that, make a valid decision to, okay, now I found a better opportunity because um, in, in, I think in economics, it's, it's very, you know, we all know about opportunity costs and the fact that um, while we're pursuing a certain decision, we're always missing out on the next best um, decision that we could have pursued and we could have you know, made more money on it or could have held instead of doing what we're doing now. And that's, I think that's something to, to keep in mind as well. Regrets in general are a dangerous place in investing, <laughs> whether yeah. you feel like you missed out on something or you regret that you bought something. So that's that's a dangerous place to be in. It's a fascinating pursuit because on one hand, it's very unemotional in the sense that you explain, but on the other hand, it's very emotional because money means so much to us and money means so much to the people we're serving, clients whose money we manage. So you have to choose where you have to be unemotional and, for example, decide that you're exiting the textile mill industry as Buffett did and be very emotional to take into account how do you really feel about holding a particular investment for whatever reason and why you feel comfortable or uncomfortable. Sometimes too much comfort in investing is not a good place. So that's something to keep in mind. In some cases, it's time to leave a certain industry and not participate in it because it has changed so much. Newspapers were an incredible industry for a long period of time. They are no longer. So you have to be aware of that change. And, and Buffett in his life, I think he turned 93 only a few days ago, he has seen such a massive change in the U.S. economy and so many industries come and go and you have to be aware of it and you can't have all your money in an industry that's going away. It's a very dangerous place to be. So expanding your investment horizon from three, five or a decade to a lifetime and seeing how you might be participating in very different businesses over time it's yeah it's fun to see and the stock doesn't know that you own it and doesn't care that you own it so don't feel bad about it yeah yeah um and and i think uh another really interesting thing is the fact that um you can see the business evolve um in a sense you can see i think buffett's seen so much and i think it's enjoyable in the process that you've seen that we've come so far from where we were um 10 years ago 20 years ago or you know lots of, of, of times ago i think as, as a society as well you start to realize we've done we've done well um and that's that's uh, interesting too yeah i had i had lauren templeton and scott phillips uh, her husband on on the show on talking billions and we talked about sir john templeton she's the the great niece of sir john templeton and she told me how he told the two of them how he's very excited for all the things they will get to see. So he was already uh, an older gentleman at the time, and he was thinking of their lifetime and how much they will see, because he has seen such a remarkable change from his life in Tennessee to traveling the world, investing globally, and benefiting from what he called the maximum pessimism, what we talked about uh, throughout this conversation, finding opportunities to buy when other people panic. But he was telling them how he's excited for all the things that they will see. And I'm very excited over all that we're going to see in the next 
couple of decades. And moments like uh, the COVID pandemic, it creates a stress on the system, but it also speeds up innovation and creative thinking. I mean, you and I are talking over Zoom. Zoom, uh, we as a firm have been using Zoom for a while because one of our partners has uh, worked remotely even before remote work was an acceptable way of doing business. But think of the big leaps we've taken on so many fronts in the last few years just because of the stress that the pandemic created on the system, that we couldn't go to an office, we couldn't go to school. There's a whole uh, shift, and we have clients of all ages, you know, from, from teenagers, 20-year-olds, all the way to 80-year-olds. And I'm very impressed how some of our older clients are comfortable with their smartphones and uh, they like Zoom and they're comfortable with it. So I see this massive leap in adoption of all kinds of services and video streaming at home and video calling and work from home. I think we've done a lot in the last few years. And I think it might have created a big wave of new innovation in terms of new businesses, new opportunities that we might not be seeing yet on the public market shareholder radar just yet. But I think there's a lot of little seedlings that will pop up, just like the bamboo that's behind you that takes a long time <laughs> to appear. But once it does, it grows really fast. So yeah. I think there are some fascinating things that are going to go public in the next 5, 10, 15 years. And I can't tell yet where and how, but I'm sure that a lot of them will figure out their business, make a nice profit, and hopefully make our lives easier, better, more enjoyable. So I'm, I'm really excited about that part of the investor journey as well. It's always, it's always good to be um, optimistic about the future. I know pessimism sounds smart and you know, it sounds... Um, something to be you know take care of and it sounds like you're really well informed and and but there's always something to worry about and 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 so we should be seeing you know on the bright side uh, this is what's going to happen and we should be excited for for the future and for that i think i'll ask my concluding um sort of question uh, mm -hmm. and it's that what is some advice um, that you have for young investors? So I ask this question to almost everyone. I love that question. <laughs> because it's a great and, question. And and for younger listeners, but uh, um, the idea that you know what 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 do you think um, young young investors or people starting out should take note of and should you know key principles they should they should keep in in mind. Well, I, I think you're the best example and the biggest inspiration for all the young listeners here. But do exactly what you did, which is just start. Start reading, learning, growing. And I think something happens once you buy your first stock and you realize, how does it really feel to own a share of a company? How does it really feel to see a price move up and down? So to me, it's start. And start as small and as early as you can and as you have to, even if it's a single stock, have your parents help you buy a single stock and see what it feels. And if it's something for you and you get hooked, then you're going to become a lifelong investor that buys individual stocks. Or you could take the more passive way that we talked about it, just making a small contribution into an index fund of some sort and growing it over time. But I think the beauty of it to me is that if you will do this over a lifetime, I am never bored because there's always something new to discover. So start as early as possible. And I jokingly asked you about the books uh, you're reading if you run out of books to read. 
I think you will never run out of books to read and you'll never run out of stocks to look at. So that's that's the fun part of it, that it's it's a game that keeps on expanding and it's a universe that keeps on growing. So there will be new companies that will pop up and new industries that we haven't even imagined yet. And I'm, I'm very excited for anybody getting started. And the same way Sir John Templeton said, um, I'm very curious what the younger generation will get to see. I consider myself young, but I'm 43. You're 15, so you have <laughs> you started earlier than I did. I picked up um, one up on Wall Street when I was 20, 21. And you've already done a remarkable research in your book, Worldly Wisdom uh, of Value, and looked up so many incredible people that have done a lot of thinking before you, and you're learning from them. So once your book is out, any young person, I think, should pick up your book, first of all, and, and grow and learn from you, and then uh, continue that journey on their own and continue to learn. But I'm very inspired by, by what you're doing. So start start early and no matter how small. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for all the, the kind, kind uh, remarks. But I think it's a, it's a, it's a vast, vast um, ocean to explore. There's so much to explore. You can never... Um, you know, finish exploring it. It's it's always a continuous process. You just have to keep on learning and keep on being involved in it. And that's, I think, what makes it so, so fun. It's it's such a rewarding journey on so many levels. And the people you get to meet and the books you get to read and the ideas you get exposed to. And I I find it very rewarding. And it's it's a bonus that you can make money if you're right about more ideas than you're wrong about. Yeah, and and it can. You don't even have to have more ideas. It can just it can just be one really good idea that you had, and it can cover up for all your losses. Um, and that's the fun, the there fun you go. part. Yeah. So I guess I'll I'll, I'll well, close there. Thank you. Thank you so much. This was such a fun conversation. You have a lot of very thoughtful questions and I enjoyed your book. I'm looking forward to it you know, going live and getting published. I think a lot of people would enjoy it. And I think you're at the very beginning of a very exciting journey ahead of you. So I wish you best of luck with all the ideas, all the investments that come your way. And I'm curious to follow your journey and learn from you and see what you're up to as you continue. Well, thank, thank you. Thank you so much for, for joining the podcast, being really supportive in the sense that you, you know, you've read my book, you've given comments. You've also, you know, been willing to talk to me and that, that really means a lot because I get to learn from someone who's, you know, been far ahead in this industry for a long period of time. So it's a, it's a very, I'd say I'm very, very grateful for you giving me this opportunity. Well, I'm grateful you reached out. It was a real pleasure exchanging emails with you and spending those uh, hour or two today and, and learning more and exploring really fascinating topics for both of us. So thank you again and best of luck with everything. No, no, no. Thank you. Thank you. You were listening to Talking Billions. We talk about big ideas, big inspirations, big topics. We take on the hardest subject of all, money. But our conversations lead us to an even bigger question, what it means to live a rich life beyond money. If you enjoyed the show, please take a moment and follow, subscribe, rate, and share with friends and family. We rely on word of mouth to promote the show. One click for you means the world to us. Thank you. Until next time, your host, Bogumil Baranowski.
The content of this podcast is for general informational purposes only, and so are the opinions of members of Seacard Associates, a registered investment advisor, and guests of the show. This podcast does not constitute a recommendation to buy or sell any specific security or financial instruments or provide investment advice or service. Past performance is not indicative of future results. More information on Seacard Associates is available in its Form ADV disclosure documents available at advisorinfo.sec.gov.